we are officially live so good morning everyone good evening everyone my name is abhinav agarwal and uh, uh, welcome to this latest edition of uh, the indic club swarajya magazine q and a with uh, with uh, authors and today i am delighted to have uh, uh, david frawley who is now known as vam pandit vam dev shastri so good morning and a big bright welcome uh, to david frawley and i'm going to to refer to you as uh, as vam dev ji from now on uh, good morning actually it's good evening here i'm very happy to be with you and to share in your wonderful series of webinars dialogues and teachings that are happening on so many different levels thank you so for those of you uh, who don't know uh, pandit vamdev shastri was born in 1950 and he has been an american hindu uh, teacher and an american hindu for at least 35 years now he was uh, influenced greatly by sri aurobindo's writings and during his visits uh, to india he is a recipient of the padma bhushan in 2015 and was awarded the the padma bhushan by the president of india last year and he has been writing for more uh, you know for more than almost uh, you know uh, more than 30 years and has more than 30 books to his credit on topics such as uh, uh, you know uh, the vedas on uh, hindu mythology ayurveda vedic astrology vedic astronomy and also on the aryan invasion theory or the myth as uh, might be a better word to describe it as uh so in so with uh, with respect to i would like to call out uh, two of his books uh, that talk about uh, the aryan invasion theory the first one the myth of the aryan invasion of india and in the second one where uh he co-authored the book with George Feuerstein and Professor Subhash Kak in search of the cradle of civilization you are fairly fairly critical of the racial basis on which the aryan invasion theory has been formulated over the over the past several decades and uh where it's been uh theorized by some that the aryans came in from somewhere in central europe and invaded and conquered north Uh, northern india and then moved to the rest of india displacing the native uh, so called aboriginal indians down further south and and out of the you know indus valley uh i have a few questions related to that but uh, let me start out with the first one which is that uh, your book came out uh, almost uh, uh, you know 25 years ago in 1991 and first of all can you write, can you tell us when you uh, wrote that book what was your thinking at the time in selecting a book on the vedas and it is a fairly fairly detailed book you quote extensively from the vedas and uh, how did you go about writing it and were you interested apprehensive about the reaction you thought that this book would receive coming from an american and a hindu uh, in the west as well as in india Yes, well let me just put it into a little bit of perspective here. I studied yoga and vedanta starting in the late 60s and then through Sri Aurobindo became introduced into the work of the Vedas. Something inspired me to look at the Vedas in the original Sanskrit. And then mainly for the spiritual and yogic meaning of the text which I studied in detail. I began translating a number of the Vedic hymns but in doing so I found that the historical and cultural perspective I've discovered 
studying the Vedas in the original Sanskrit was very different than what the history books had presented. So after a number of years, extending more than a decade of translating Vedic hymns, I decided to do a book on the historical aspects because I saw so much discrepancy there. And actually this book was originally written for an American audience and only later published in India. And it was done as a part of a spiritual quest. And I was surprised at the reaction to it and the positive response to it, not only in India, but also in the West. And I suddenly found myself involved in a whole set of questions and controversies uh, that I had not entirely planned to be part of, but I felt I was equipped to deal with. And over time, I did add more and more uh, to that. And you'll see in that book of 25 years ago, we're examining or raising the same issues that are being examined and raised in India today relative to these same issues. So on one hand, I'm happy that the book is still relevant after 25 years. On the other hand, it's also interesting to see that these basic questions are still there, not resolved, even though the evidence is much more in our favor. So true. One would have thought, uh, and you do write in your book that, uh, and this is, I'm talking about 1991, that emerging evidence uh, suggests that uh, this should be called more an Indus-Saraswati civilization rather than strictly an Indus uh, civilization. And it is somewhat uh, curious and, and also sad that 25 years later, we are, have, we are still having that, uh, that, uh, you know, that discussion. Uh, so... Now, I, you know, I alluded to the Aryan theory, uh, you know, in when introducing your books. And the fact is that today, 25 years after you wrote, you first wrote your book, the Aryan theory today is a lot more discredited than it was in 1991. But uh, for a variety of reasons, this racial attribution, you know, it remains starkly persistent with not only Western academia, but also with in India, with the leftist and Marxist you know, historians, they have stubbornly refused to adapt, modify, or discard this theory. So in your uh, opinion and in your studies over the last several decades, what would you attribute this persistence uh, of this theory for which, you know, frankly speaking, in 100 years, not a uh, you know, shred or iota of credible evidence has been, uh, you know, uh, has been presented forward coming in from an American perspective, what would you, you know, what's your, your, your take on that? Well, first, you're absolutely right. There's no hard evidence for the theory at all. There's nothing archaeologically in terms of ruins. There's nothing in terms of geography. There's nothing in the text. There's nothing in genetics. There's only speculation. But the fact that this theory continues is easy to understand. It is not just a question of India, but of European identity. The Germans invested a lot in Aryan nationalism in the 19th century. And even though the Nazi side of it has been discredited, it still continues. Russians have it. Ukrainians have it. Europeans in general are looking for, in the Aryans, the original Europeans. So it's very difficult for them to give up that idea of their own heritage. And for that purpose, they have ignored what the Vedas actually say and made the archeology span of India irrelevant to their own ideas. Besides that, there's been massive political uh, investment in the theory. Marx turned the caste theory and the Aryan invasion theory into his class war for India, which the Marxists have turned into an article of faith. The Aryan theory became the basis of Dravidian nationalism, which also is not found in any ancient or even medieval 
Dravidian text. It's only found in modern times after Western scholars encouraged the Dravidian nationalist movement. Even the Dalit movement, the idea that the Dalits were the original uh, Aryans, or they were the original indigenous people displaced by the Aryans has a lot of political investment. So there's no ancient theory in the history of the world that has had such uh, political investment, cultural investment on the other side. And of course, on the Hindu side, that also exists because on the Hindu side, that is Hindu identity and history and the history of India. So that is why this idea of what happened uh, three to 5,000 years ago in India is still a very major historic, is still a very major political uh, concern here, where in no other country of the world are events of ancient history invested with uh, such uh, problematical issues. So, uh, what is also interesting is, uh, uh, and I believe, you know, someone else recently uh, has talked about it, and certainly Arun Shori, for example, also talk, has written about it, is that uh, if you look at uh, communist, uh, you know, the history written by, by historians in, in hardcore communist nations, such as the Soviet Union, they are a lot more honest and frank about, uh, uh, you know, about some of the historical aspects of India rather than, you know, our own Indian historians who have been, uh, you know, more loyal than the Queen, so to say, when it has come to defending and perpetuating these theories. Uh, would you like to share your, your, your thoughts on that part? Well, yes. Well, first of all, the uh, Russians have rewritten their history in the post-Marxist era and thrown out all these Marxist interpretations of history. The Chinese are also bringing in Confucius and recognizing their own history more. It's only in India where we find the colonial uh, history still there. Even in America, we've thrown out the history of the Native Americans, who were also uh, marginalized historically by the Western historians and rewritten that. So it's odd that only India is keeping up this colonial view because it has political value for certain groups in India today. And there's a, an, an attempt to avoid the data rather than to bring it in. And as the Aryan question is uh, disproved, for example, as we see, there's no evidence of Aryans coming into the country. There's no evidence of invasion or destruction. There's no Aryan artifacts, no Aryan ruins, nothing that can be attributed to the Aryan uh, invasion or even migration. Then this theory has been rewritten to say, well, the migrants were smaller in number. They didn't need to leave an historical record. They could have done all this work and change in the culture without ever anybody knowing uh, who they were or where they came from. Uh, so there's, this, is, this is not evidence. This is uh, clouding over the theory. Or as our friend uh, Kalyana Raman says, it's become the Aryan invasion, migration, tourist trickle-down theory, so that the Aryans no longer need to be identified in any way. They just can be maintained according to the vested interest of those who have, are holding to the theories. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, perfect. So let me uh, uh, move to the next question, which is that, so, you know, it's sort of related to the previous question, which is that in your uh, book coming to, you know, to your book that we are talking about God, Sages and Kings, Vedic Secrets of Ancient uh, Civilization, you write that uh, most central to the historical interpretation of the Rig Veda is the story of, the, of Sodas and the legendary battle of the Ten Kings. And 
Later, you also write that some modern scholars have seen in the story of Sudas the Aryan conquest of India and its Aboriginal people. So, uh, can you elaborate on this? You know, a little bit on this point for our viewers and why this is not necessarily ne not necessarily the case. And you do uh, describe and elaborate in in your book on, to this point where you basically say that both the victor and the defeated were Aryans. So, uh, can you share some your thoughts on that? Yes, but just to put the book in a little bit of perspective, the book starts with the image of the ocean and the fact that there's more than 150 references to the ocean in the Rig Veda itself, including ships crossing the sea, Shataritra, or 100 oars. So I've placed the Vedic culture firmly in India all the way down to the sea. Now, when we come to the Aryan Dasyu or Arya Dasyu Dasa conflicts that we see in the Vedic text, there's the uh, tendency to interpret them by the Aryan invasionist, migrationist as a battle with indigenous people. But if we read the text, we find that terms like Dasa or Dasyu can be given to the same peoples, Vedic peoples, according to their behavior. And in that regard, the Vedic people are divide large, divided largely into five groups, the Turvashas, Yadus, Purus, Anus, and Druyus. And of these, the Vedic people per se are the Puru Bharatas primarily. And so they were in conflict with some of the local uh, people, particularly Turvashas and Yadus are mentioned as Dasas, Dasus, and inimical people. But specifically in the uh, Ten Kings uh, battle and uh, hymn and verses, the enemies are specifically said to be Anus, Druyus, and Turvashas, and possibly some Purus. So they are clearly members of the same five groups of broader Vedic people. Arya is not an indication of race or ethnicity, but of behavior and culture. So too with uh, Dasa. Generally, Arya is the more noble aspect of the culture. Dasa is more the common or sometimes the debased aspect of the culture. We see this uh, later in Mahabharata, where the Pandavas and the Kauravas were fighting each other in a civil war. And even there, the terms Asura and Malaysia are used for Sindhus and Saviras, or people of Punjab and Western India. Uh, these negative terms are behavioral and should not be interpreted in an ethnic matter. Also, this battle is said to occur between two rivers, the Parushni, which is the Ravi, and the Yamuna on the other side. And clearly what is in between Purushni and uh, Yamuna is the Saraswati River. Sudas, the main king, was attacked from the east and the west. So clearly he was located in the Saraswati region, fighting local inimical uh, people or nearby people regarded as part of the same greater culture of the five peoples. Okay. Thank you so much. So I'll move to the next question, which is that... Uh, uh, and that you write in your book, I think on page 227, that it is in the worship of the goddesses in India that the forms of the Vedic religion most survive today. The Vedic ideas of the spiritual life as a sacrifice, a battle and a chant are most found in the goddess worship. Now, while today, based on evidence, we know that there is no discontinuity between the Vedic age and the so-called Brahmanical age that came much later, according to some historians, what you write about, which is that uh, the worship of the goddesses in India is where forms of the Vedic religion from almost four or five thousand years or, or, or back survive today. 
it is still startling to, to many that the, there's such a high degree of continuity and that too in the form of the worship of the goddess. Uh, what can, can you please elaborate on that? Yes, well, first of all, the Vedic teaching, like the Puranic teaching and the later Hindu teachings, is highly pluralistic, synthetic, has a number of deities and a number of points of view. The main difference that we find in Vedic times is the image of the deities is more naturalistic, Agni as fire, uh, Surya as the sun, rather than anthropomorphic or human in images like the later deities we find in the Puranic tradition. So they're only vaguely anthropomorphic, too, so to call them simply male or female is incorrect or to regard them as representing male or female uh, values. They're more a vision of the world of nature. So that is the first point. We shouldn't just read male and female images into Vedic uh, deities. Agni is referred to in some instances as a child, Indra as a, ma as, as a young man, but all the Vedic deities are said in a number of the hymns that they're honored like the father and the mother, the brother and the sister, and connected to all aspects of life and all aspects of nature are definitely there. And in that respect, the feminine side is also there. All the Vedic deities have their consorts or feminine sides. And most specifically, Veda itself is Veda Mata, or Veda as the mother. And Veda is the manifestation of Vak, which is the feminine principle, speech, the word, the mantra is the feminine principle. Even more so, the chandas or the meter of the Vedic hymns is the feminine uh, principle. And there are also feminine uh, deities and feminine images woven throughout the Vedas. Scholars tend to interpret a hymn superficially by the name of the deity the main hymn is given to, like Indra, who has often very masculine characteristics. But he's also sometimes said to be dearer than the mother, and that the mother is the most dear, and Indra is like our dearest uh, mother. So the feminine images are also there in the uh, background. There is a continuity of Vedic and Tantric teachings relative to the use of mantra, sacred nature of the Sanskrit alphabet, and the worship of uh, Shakti. Vedic deities have more the form of light, Jyotirmaya Purusha, in the Shakta tradition, it's more the form of lightning, but the Shakti and the light, the light and the lightning always go together, the Shiva Shakti influences. So there is a certain feminine Shakti Devi dimension of Vedic thought and Vedic teachings that should be recognized and haven't been, hasn't been given it. That the Vedas emphasize nature and are not so anthropomorphic in their uh, imagery. Okay, excellent. Uh, move to the next question, which is uh, now one point that you obviously raise is that the, that the uh, a large part of the Vedic civilization flourished along the Saraswati River. The other point that you raise is that uh, the Veda strongly suggests that the Vedic civilization that flourished along this, this Saraswati River was a maritime civilization, and you. Uh, and you write that not only is Indra compared to the sea, his thunderbolt Vajra with which he slays the dragon is found in the ocean is uh, one of the verses from the Vedas. And uh, 
So it's more now my question is more, so, uh, you know, historical in nature, which is that why then have India's maritime advances and its uh, long, long history of maritime trade been relegated in, in, in history texts, uh, you know, not only in India, but even in foreign texts that, uh, that talk and write about India. Even the Cholas, for example, who ruled over the oceans a thousand years ago in the Indian or near the Indian subcontinent are mentioned, but in passing. Yes. Very important point. The largest Hindu empire historically is Sri Vijaya, which extended throughout all of South India, all the way through Indonesia, even I think touching the Philippines, at least until as far as its influence goes. There's been a long history of maritime contact, of course, the spice trade going to Kerala from China, from Rome, from Babylonia, and all those cultures has definitely been there and has been ignored even though it flourished all the way up until the 16th century uh, before when Indonesia became a dominantly uh, Muslim. We also find in Sri Lanka as early as the 6th century BCE, uh, Sanskrit and uh, Arya culture there could be much earlier than that. We have that into the 2nd century BCE in Indonesia. So clearly there was a maritime aspect to the ancient Indian culture. And the Vedic aspect of that is ignored the most, even though the Vedas talk about Saraswati Piranit's course from the mountains to the sea and have the image of the ocean. And we know that Gujarat and Kutch was an important part of the Harappan civilization, which also was maritime uh, in its uh, activity. And the Vedic rishis are connected to the sea, the Brigus to Kutch, Manu is, an, is, is a uh, flood figure connected to Kerala or the Malaya region. All the Vedic deities are connected to the sea. Indra releases the seven rivers to flow into the sea. Agni has his oceanic form, Samudra, Vasasam. Soma is lauded as the great ocean, Mahasamudra. Varuna is specifically a deity of the sea and the ocean. The idea of crossing great rivers and oceans is there throughout the uh, Vedic uh, text, great Vedic rishis, uh, Brigu families, we say, is also descendants of the god Varuna, and even Vasishta and Agastya are connected to uh, Mitra and Varuna as their progenitors and deities. And in the Vedic text, Vasishta, who has the largest number of hymns, uh, is connected to the ocean directly and placed upon as a ship upon the sea. And he's said to be the younger brother of Agastya, who is well known to be connected to the sea. So these symbols and connections are there all along, going back to the oldest Vedic text, and we should not ignore them. Thank you, Vamdevji. I have a follow-on question to, to that of sorts, which is that uh, uh, now one of, uh, you know, when, when talking about the, the, this topic is more about the Saraswati River, which is that in some cases the reference to you know the saraswati river as a mighty ocean uh, could it you know some people might uh, have argued that uh, this is not the saraswati river that they were referring to because uh, you know as you write the saraswati river of today is but a small small stream found in haryana but you know again uh, 3000 or three and a half thousand years ago the saraswati was a mighty river uh, what is in your opinion, the basis of this confusion of, uh, you know, the Saraswati is, is not the mighty ocean-like river that is referred to, but might be some other reference. 
Well, first of all, the Saraswati dried up around 4,000 years ago. So anybody who wants to maintain this, the Aryan invasion theory of 1500 BC has to discredit or ignore the Saraswati uh, River. We also know the Saraswati River didn't dry up all at once. It went through what is called the Vinashana phase, where it dried up into a series of lakes in the Haryana region. Uh, and we find the Vinashana Saraswati mentioned in a lot of the very late Vedic literature, like Mahabharata, and even, I think, maybe uh, suggested in some of the later uh, Brahmanas. Uh, so it's very interesting that we have in the Vedic literature the stages of the drying up of the Saraswati River, with, in the oldest hymns, having Saraswati as a mighty river flowing into the sea, and only in later hymns, the Vinashana. And apparently this Vinashana, or period in which the Saraswati dried up in a series of lakes, corresponds with the Harappan, or at least the late Harappan era, and by the end of the Harappan era, even that phase of the river apparently uh, is gone. There has been wonderful work on the river by the Geological Survey of India uh, that you can examine for more detail on this issue. Uh, there are still some issues of the timing of the different phases of the river, but it does appear that the Vedas represent the pre-Harappan phase of the Saraswati River, and the later Vedic period is more likely extending into Mahabharata, the Harappan phase and beyond. Great. Uh, so I'll, you know, my next question is somewhat connected to the question I asked, uh, you know, about goddesses. And you did say that, uh, uh, you know, it's easy to anthropo anthropomorphize uh, some of the, you know, the shlokas, the verses in the Mahabharat, but uh, it has become, you know, my question is that it, ha it has become somewhat fashionable over the, you know, the past few years for. Uh, you know, I use the word pop experts in Hinduism to proclaim that ancient Hindu civilization was patriarchal and somewhat discriminatory towards women by, you know, by nature. And you, on the other hand, quote several, uh, you know, verses, shlokas from the Vedas. So one of them is that the seers or the sages often compared themselves to women or wives of gods. Uh, you write that women could go to assemblies and choose their husbands. And there is uh, no mention of sati or widow burning to be found in the Vedas. And while, you know, of course, if we all realize that every culture undergoes a process of a transformation, it changes Hindu culture, Vedic culture has never been static, which even the Vedas, uh, you know, as uh, from the start to the, to the latter parts of the Vedas brings out very clearly. But why this dogmatic insistence, uh, you know, on the part of modern experts to label Hindu culture as patriarchal, uh, you know, uh, ipso facto, you know, discriminatory against uh, women? Well, there's a broader question here. And that is we cannot use 21st century standards of political correctness to judge ancient cultures. And if we're going to do that to judge ancient Hinduism, we have to judge all the other ancient cultures of the world and even modern cultures of the world. Women were not treated very well in England in the 19th century. Slavery was still there throughout 19th century Europe and the United States. So if we take a book like Manu Samhita, it may not correspond terribly well according to certain modern political standards, but as something two to, two to three thousand years old, it stands very well relative to other law books and law codes according to the times. If we're going to judge Hinduism by the Manu Samhita, we ought to judge Christianity by the law codes of Charlemagne. And we also have to understand that in Hinduism there is no Sharia, 
the uh, Dharmic codes, the law codes, are books of certain cultures at certain times. They are not scriptures for all of time. And Hindus are allowed to make changes culturally, socially, in their behavior relative to changes in time. We have to look at ancient times in the context. Uh, there was not technology. There were not uh, printing press. People did not live so long. There were often foreign invasions where women had to be uh, protected. So male and female roles had to be more clearly defined than they are uh, today. So first of all, let's remove that historical disconnect. And what we do see if we study the text is that there was profound respect for the feminine as a spiritual principle. India has the greatest set of worship of the goddess you'll find anywhere in the world. In Christianity, Mary is the mother of God. She is not the divine mother or the mother of the universe. She is only the mother of uh, Jesus. Even in the Buddhist tradition, Tara is the bodhisattva, a being who lived once and took a vow to save living beings. She is not the mother of the universe. So this worship of the mother of the universe is what we find most in the Hindu text, also in some of the other uh, pagan and traditional uh, texts, and in great detail going back to the ancient text and rooted in that. For example, when we, when we uh, do the worship of Durga, Durga Sukta, consists of entirely Vedic verses, particularly for the worship of uh, Agni, and Durga also arises from Agni or the uh, sacred fire. So we have to look at a deeper level of the teachings and at an appropriate uh, historical uh, perspective with consideration for uh, the times. And the fact is that we do need to liberalize culture in various ways relative to women and other social classes and things. But in ancient times, medieval times, they had other compulsions they needed to attend to that we should not forget. And we should look into the uh, deeper meaning rather than create unnecessary political controversies. Uh, I have somewhat of a, 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 you know, a provocative question to ask here, and I won't uh, uh, you know, dwell deep or much into this, but I'd still like to ask you that, uh, according to at least one, uh, you know, very, very prominent uh, uh, you know, expert on Hinduism, uh, and, and the lady is based in the U.S., is uh, her proposition is that the more uh, the, the, you know, the respect given to women in, in uh, or the more the worship of the feminine form in Hinduism, it's actually an indicator of the extent of discrimination and violence against women. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, it's, uh, I hadn't planned on asking this question, but uh, I'll still go ahead. Well, first of all, uh, again, a broader issue. The ancient texts are not concerned, and even the, the medieval, the Hindu texts are not concerned with political and social matters. They're concerned with worship of the divine. Worship of the divine as the infinite, the eternal, the transcendent. Shakti is the mother of the universe, but also Chit Shakti, the supreme consciousness that transcends the universe. She is honors at the self of all beings as the divine presence uh, in uh, all beings. And a lot of the images of Shakti worship are images of sadhana, the chakras, uh, kundalini, uh, overcoming the negative thoughts, the demonic energies uh, within uh, our own minds. So when we politicize what are essentially mystical symbols, we can cause a lot of confusion and a lot of uh, problems definitely to occur. 
So it's very important that we understand where these teachings are coming from. But the fact is that you find the worship of the goddess throughout India, the great temples, the great festivals, and these have to a very great extent helped with the honoring of the feminine principle and helped with the honoring of the uh, goddess. Now, certainly there are social issues you can address in Hindu and other uh, society over time, whether it's slavery, whether it's issues of women, but targeting Hinduism as a religion is completely inappropriate. It'd be much more appropriate to target Christianity or uh, Islam for the social inequalities that existed between uh, male and female in those cultures. But even more importantly, spiritual texts should be looked at directly and social issues should be looked at directly. This issue is to try to discredit Hindu spirituality because of the social situation in medieval India is highly politically motivated and is actually missing the meaning of the text. And we see how the world is embracing these spiritual texts and teachings from the Hindu tradition. And we should learn to honor that, and India should learn to honor that, and Western scholars should too. Okay, I have one uh, uh, you know question that uh, uh, that came in from chat, and I'll uh, you know I'll open this uh, this uh, webinar uh, to our attendees in just a minute. But this I'd like to you know put this question forward before mm -hmm. moving to the next one, which is that, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll read out the question, which is that. I would like to ask Pandit Vamdev Shastri on classification of Indian religions vis-a-vis Abraham, Abrahamic. Uh, should we say Abrahamic religions are belief systems and Indic ones are philosophic systems? Would it be, I think the question is, would it be accurate or fair to characterize the two as such? Well, between Abrahamic, Abrahamic traditions and Indic traditions or Dharmic traditions, I would say the Abrahamic traditions are faith-based traditions uh, primarily, and they're also rooted in historical revelations. Vedic traditions are Dharmic and knowledge-based. Veda means knowledge. It does not mean faith. Faith has a certain place. We need some faith or confidence to pursue knowledge, but knowledge is the goal. The Rishi is honored as a person or a seer, not as a man of uh, faith. And there is no specific belief system in the Vedic and the Dharmic traditions. Dharmic traditions teach us a way of meditation so that we can experience the truth directly for ourselves. So I would say faith-based traditions versus knowledge-based traditions. But there's naturally a degree of crossover uh, between the two. There are some knowledge-based aspect to faith-based traditions and faith-based aspects to knowledge-based traditions. But the Indic traditions are meditation-based, not belief-based. They do not have any salvation by proxy or any salvation at all. What is aimed at is spiritual realization uh, self-knowledge and higher awareness defined as various ways transcending the mind to a state of consciousness of the universal reality. Okay. Thank you, Vamdev. My, uh, my last question before I open this up uh, for Q&A is that uh, what is your current uh, focus of uh, work and research and uh, what can we expect from you in 2016 and even beyond? Well, actually, what we just brought out, which is very relevant, came out at the end of 2014, is the new book called The Vedic Yoga, The Path of the Rishi, which has over 400 translations in terms of verses from the Rig Veda, and tries to show how yoga, uh, meditation, 
mantra, aspects of Ayurveda, Hindu spirituality can be found in the hymns and mantras of the Rig Veda itself, and drawing continuity from Upanishadic references that we find to Rig Veda, like Vamadeva's reference that uh, I am the sun, Ahamano Rabhavam Suryascha, which was given relative to the Aham Brahmasmi, the Aham I am Brahman statement of that Upanishad, to show that there's a continuity of the spiritual yogic tradition going back to the earliest times. Vedas are not just an historical tradition, but a great cultural tradition. Then after that, we're releasing shortly a book called Shiva, the Lord of Yoga. The American edition is out, Indian edition is coming shortly, where we discuss the connections of Shiva with the Vedas and Vedic Shaivism and the antiquity of yoga and Shaivism, and also its relevance not only relative to India, but this whole uh, worship throughout the ancient world, the standing stones, the worship of the sacred fire, which extends far beyond uh, India. Uh, so that work is going on, and we have other books since on the history that has occurred, and uh, more uh, research also on the spiritual practices of the uh, Vedas and the meditation practices. I'm doing some more research on that right now. Thank you, Vamdevji. I am now going to open this up to our attendees to ask questions. So uh, please note that you are uh, your microphones. I have muted your microphones. So if you want to ask a question, please unmute your microphone and you can ask a question. If you want, you can also send your question in by chat and I will read those out uh, after this. Vamdevji, uh, my name is Harish. Uh, I'm actually from Baltimore, Maryland. So I have this question for you. Uh, when you look at most of the academic in institutions in India, it is almost taken over by leftist Marxist historians. So how do you think someone should approach this and try to establish Indian history from a viewpoint of a history rather than from a political situation where you try to interpret everything as uh, elitist who try to uh, win over and who try to suppress a large majority because that is the way people interpret and sometimes they even come out proudly and say that I'm a Marxist historian. So what are the ways forward? Should we just try to make our own institutions or is it time for digital universities? How do we streamline this whole process in trying to replace the narrative? Well, first of all, the old narrative has to be challenged. Uh, we are living in the post-Marxist era, except in perhaps Indian academia. As we said, the academics throughout the world have thrown out most of the Marxism, particularly we say even in the uh, Soviet Union. Their views should be challenges, and they are. ICHR is definitely challenging them uh, right now. And their views should be challenged. And we also should highlight their political uh, background that is relevant. And the fact is that their theories are also true to their uh, political views. We do need to create our own institutions as well. And we do need to bring more Hindus and also more just open-minded people into historical uh, studies. Even in America, Freudian psychology is only being used to interpret the Hindu religion. It has been thrown out relative to Christianity and other religions. Freud himself used uh, his own uh, 
uh, psychology to discredit his own religion and called Moses himself a historical fraud. Yet no one in Jewish study uses that uh, today. So we need to expose how these uh, theories are, are outdated and wrong. But we should also recognize that these people, their influence is mainly in academia. For example, in America, nobody knows who Wendy Doniger is or Michael Witzel. You will find they're, they're almost totally unknown entities, and you'll find their books are hardly read. But a book like Autobiography of a Yogi is read by millions of people. He's against the Aryan invasion, also Paramahansa Yogananda. And even a movie was made uh, of his life, and there are many millions of people practicing yoga, meditation, taking up the spiritual aspect of these teachings and not influenced by that historical uh, narrative or following a different uh, historical narrative, such as we find in the uh, Vedic and the uh, older traditions throughout the world. So we need to challenge them definitely. We need new books, new teachings. We need to understand the breadth of what is going on. And we need both our own institution, but we also need to move into the academic realm. Unfortunately, Hindus didn't do that. Sikhs have done it. And if we follow their example, we see that that can also be changed. It is a political and educational matter, not entirely a matter of historical studies. Okay, thank you, Ramdevji. My, uh, I have two questions that have come in through chat. One is, uh, the first one is that uh, this is regarding the study uh, or the revival of Ayurveda. And the question is, is the study of Ayurveda sufficient to revive it? What are the other activities that need to be undertaken for its strong revival, or, uh, or you know, what what would you uh, you know do you have any you know strong opinions or thoughts uh, one way or the other on it? Yes, it's that's a very important topic. It's, it's slightly different than the topic of the webinar, but I've been involved in the Ayurvedic field when we started about over thirty years ago. No one in the West knew what Ayurveda was, and in India there was no respect for it. In 30 years, we have seen a very major change. Almost all the gurus in from India now have Ayurvedic products. Uh, Ramdev and Balakrishna are spreading the message of Ayurveda throughout the country. There are Ayurvedic groups throughout most of the yoga centers of the world. And Ayurveda has many, many books and bestsellers, as for my friend Deepak Chopra, for example. So it has come very far in 30 years. It hasn't had enough government support. It has only slowly given that. Now today, Ayush has its independent ministry, which was previously under the medical establishment. But Ayurveda is coming forth. It needs more support, more study. More people in India should practice pure Ayurveda. With the license they have today, they can also practice the modern medicine medicine and some choose to do that. So more emphasis needs to be brought into Ayurveda because natural healing, meditation, awareness, uh, behavioral medicine, right lifestyle, all these vegetarianism, all these things are very important parts of a healthier uh, medicine and way of life uh, globally. China supported its traditional medical heritage even though it wasn't even when it was a communist country. So even the left in India should support Ayurveda. This is something for the benefit of everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, uh, I'll go to the next question, which has come in uh, through chat, which is, uh, uh, so it's got two parts. The first one is that, uh, yes, this session is being recorded and uh, 
after the after the webinar i will put both an audio version of this webinar on soundcloud and a video version on youtube so yes so this is going to be made available uh, uh, you know over the web and the second is part of this question is how to uh, you know contact you this person says that i have great interest in this subject and currently doing my own little research into vedas and this valley civilization and the epics would it be possible to mail you and i think you uh, you have you are somewhat active on twitter so uh, would you mind sharing a twitter handle uh, you know that might be one good way for people to reach out to you uh, yes, we do have a very large website at vedanet.com, V-E-D-A-N-E-T.com. There's more than a hundred original articles on various aspects of uh, Vedic thought that I have uh, posted there and many other resources, links to all the books and publications and courses. Twitter, the handle is just David Frawley Ved, V-E-D, and I've been active on that. We also have a Dr. David Frawley a Facebook page uh, where we keep up uh, with all of our various uh, activities. As we are active in a number of fields like Ayurveda, Jyotish, Yoga, and Vedic studies, you will find at times uh, different topics there, but more towards the Indian audience. I have been using uh, Twitter specifically for that purpose. It works uh, very well. Thank you. I'll uh, move to the next question again from chat, which is, uh, uh, you know, the question is that you have studied Vedas from a spiritual, historical, social and cultural perspective. And is there somebody who has looked into it from science and engineering perspectives and uh, and and uh, redefine the basis of management sciences, including economics and policy? And the person says, I have an engineering background and would be interested. Uh, yes, there are many other people working in the Vedic field. In the science and engineering field, my friend Subhash Kak, who you will have, I think, on a uh, future webinar, can handle that uh, very well. For those interested in the archaeology, there's Professor B.B. Lal, the former director of the Archaeological Survey of India, who has put forth that information in very good uh, books like the Saraswati Flows On that you can examine. We've also mentioned the Geological Survey of uh, India, there are groups uh, bringing out aspects of Vedic study relative to economics. I've dealt with the Ayurvedic, the Jyotish, and the spiritual issue. We also have a book on Vedic counseling coming up, and we are working on certain management issues. There are groups like the Chinmaya Mission that have addressed that. And there are many other important authors. Sri Aurobindo has very important works on the uh, Vedas, and there's this whole school coming out of him. Uh, uh, Ramana Maharshi's uh, uh, disciple, Kavyakanta Ganapati Muni, I've mentioned that in my Vedic Yoga book, Swami Veda Bharati, Sri Anirvan, the whole Arya Samaj tradition, there's quite a bit there. In the Hindu tradition and the spiritual tradition, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, uh, that the academics are ignoring, but is quite relevant as to the yogic and spiritual and even historical meaning of the uh, Vedic text and scientific connections. Okay. Uh, I... While I do have a few more questions uh, that have that you know uh, we have a very active uh, uh, you know chat uh, session going on, but I'd like to open this up to people who uh, who if they want to ask questions uh, directly, please do so. If not, then I will continue with reading out questions that have come in from the chat window. Okay, uh, let me. Let me continue with reading the questions from chat. Uh, so, 
Okay, so uh, there are two or three, I'll, I'll see how I can, uh, I'll start with the first one, which is that uh, uh, very sort of central or, or at least a very you know, much connected with the question of the Vedas is also the question of Sanskrit. And, uh, you know, Sri Rajiv Malhotra has recently come out with his latest book, which is Battle for Sanskrit. And uh, I think if I go back, the question is, uh, uh, do you have any, uh, you know, any, 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 thoughts on a if you have read the book and b on the issue of sanskrit and its origins because it has been argued by some that sanskrit itself uh, is foreign in origin to you know to india uh, yes first of all i've known rajiv for probably close to uh, 20 years i haven't had a chance to read the book but i have i did discuss with him at some points the uh, contents and the ideas there the point i would like to raise in the vedic context is that all the modern scholars, East and West, and the academics are always saying how great Paninian Sanskrit is, how scientific, how well-formed. And then they're saying that, well, Vedic Sanskrit was very primitive, nature worship and nothing more. But the fact is Vedic Sanskrit is extremely sophisticated and the sophisticated nature of Paninian Sanskrit is only possible because of Vedic Sanskrit, which Panini refers to and honors in uh, many ways. If we look at the Vedic language and the Vedic Sanskrit, it is filled with multi-leveled meanings, with deep symbolism, with profound plays upon the sounds of words, with uh, subtle uh, adaptability of word meanings, with very complex metrical patterns, uh, with uh, very deep spiritual symbolism. So my point, one of the arguments I have for this, the antiquity and sophistication of the Vedic culture is Sanskrit, and not only Paninian Sanskrit, but Vedic Sanskrit, and the need to give the Vedic Sanskrit its deeper study and place of honor that we also give to uh, Panini. Vedas are said to be manifestations of Vak, connected to this idea of a cosmic language, a mantric language, a spiritual language, divine word, you can put it in various ways, but more as a scientific factor of vibratory consciousness, even in the uh, Vedic thought. So it's very important that we reclaim the Vedic sophistication of Sanskrit and Vedic Sanskrit, and also recognize that uh, Sanskrit is the ultimate language of deeper consciousness and uh, yogic spirituality, meditation, going all the way back to Vedas. Thank you so much. And yes, we are, uh, you know, uh, hoping to do uh, in the in the coming, you know, not too distant uh, future uh, webinar with uh, you know, the Sri Rajiv Malhotra uh, and his book. But uh, uh, I'll move on to the next question, which is that. Uh, and I'll read out the question, which is that you were the first one to mention that mantras given in the Upanishads are from the Samhitas. Your point that while they are given philosophical or spiritual meaning for those mantras, but in the Samhitas, they are given as mere rituals. Is this not an issue in Hinduism? Uh, the philosophical schools of Hinduism actually not understanding the essence of Samhitas, but trying to make it just as the ritual. Uh, yes, there, there are issues there, <clears throat> but we have to recognize, first of all, I'm not the first person who, who did that. Uh, Sri Aurobindo has done that. Uh, even there was this Atmananda uh, commentary on Asya Sukta, I think, from the 12th century. We also find a reference to Vedic verses for spiritual realization 
in Mahabharata, Puranas, even in some works of Shankara, even most notably in the Upanishads and uh, Brahmanas. Even in Brahmanas, I always say, Yaevam Veda, for he who knows. It is never a question of just uh, ritual. So what happened is we hold that the Vedic mantras can be interpreted as either karma or jnana, as either knowledge or ritual. The later philosophical traditions ignored or did not give adequate importance to the philosophical basis or inner meaning of the Vedic mantras because they were very ancient and very archaic and require a much uh, deeper study. So we can understand why they haven't given them that importance, but now that we've moved into an era where we understand symbolic languages, when we can go into uh, deeper mantras, it is very important that we reclaim that. Another great guru who did Upanishadic commentaries in the Vedic light was uh, Sri Anurvan, and of course we've mentioned uh, Sri Aurobindo, and my Vedic yoga book actually covers this topic in uh, some detail. Vedic rishis as seers of the mantra were also Raj yogis. And we see that figures like Vasishta, Vishwamitra, Vamadeva of the Rig Veda have been honored throughout all the text and made teachers at uh, all the uh, levels. Okay. Thank you. My, uh, the next question, again, this is coming from chat, is that... Uh, if Indians or Aryans didn't come from outside and uproot the quote-unquote Dravidians, then where did we come from? May you please elaborate on the out-of-India theory? Uh, yes. If we look at the, uh, not only the archaeological record, we also look at the record of the skeletal record and populations, India has one of the oldest populations of peoples in the world continually moving through the Ice Ages. Sometimes it's regarded that the populations or the people moved out of Africa and to a great extent in India and then also uh, through there. So India has never had any problem in producing populations and Indian populations have been moving out. We can even see in modern or medieval times the uh, gypsies. And in other times, that has also been uh, going on. We also have trade like the, silk tra uh, like the Silk Trail and the Spice Trail. So there is this idea of India as a center of civilization. And this is what the Europeans thought all the way up until the 18th century. Nobody looked at India in ancient times as having gotten its uh, civilization from the outside. When the Greeks came to India under Alexander, they found a tradition of under Megasthenes of 153 kings going back 6,400 years, according to Greek records. The Greeks never said they brought civilization to India. Only the modern 19th to 20th century Western votaries of the Greeks have done that. The Greeks in many ways had a civilization similar to India, as did the uh, Romans. We definitely have the spread of language, uh, in fact, if you can, there's a very interesting interlap. You can do an inter, you can put the languages, the, uh, the Sanskritic or the Indo-European languages as uh, covering, coloring one part of the world. And then you can put the Dharmic traditions as coloring another part of the world. And you see they cover most of the world and they center in India. Uh, and yet ancient European pagan traditions also had very similar symbolisms and connections. We note that there was a free trade and connection from North India to the Danube. The Scythians of 2,000 years ago had kingdoms from the Punjab all the way to the Danube, and there was a free flow of trade. 
the Europe is not a continent. Europe is a division of the Asian continent, and the Pontic Steppes has always had a free movement of Indian and particularly Iranian people across that. We have influences into the West. There were trading communities of Indians in Alexandria. Uh, Romans, uh, Greeks went to India, great uh, European and particularly Greek philosophers. I believe it was Plotinus and Apollonius uh, went to India. There's a story of Jesus going to India. So there is India as a cradle or source of civilization. And uh, a lot of the arguments that are used for connecting uh, Indo-European languages or connecting uh, the European pagan and uh, Vedic uh, and Iranian traditions work better for an out-of-India tradition. Historically, we see people mainly moving from east to west into Europe and Central Asia, not west to east uh, the uh, other way. So there is this other theory, the out-of-India theory, how the Indian culture uh, and languages have spread. And whenever you have an influence, you need a vast civilization. Uh, Latin was able to create all these uh, languages that we have in the Romance field of languages. Languages are based upon dominant languages. There's the spread of English, for example. If we go back in ancient times, there is one language that had the influence and the power to create an imprint of Indo-European languages, which is Sanskrit. Other Indo-European lingua francas like Persian or Greek or Latin or even the Scythian or the Prakrits uh, were also uh, doing that as well. So we can actually turn a lot of these arguments in favor of the Indic uh, and Dharmic Vedic culture. And it makes more sense with the archaeological ruins in India. Harappan sites extend to Central Asia, the vast uh, movement of culture, ideas, and peoples that's always been attributed to India. So that is an important uh, theory to study. Conrad Ellis has also done very good work on that theory. Excellent. Thank, thank you so much, Vamdev Ji. Uh, I am doing a quick time check, and we are at the top of the hour. What I would uh, 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 request is that uh, I will send all questions that have come in from chat to you, Vamdev Ji, and I would also uh, encourage people to use Twitter to send and post your uh, their questions, uh, uh, you know, marking you on, on their tweets. Uh, I will, as I said, uh, put a sound and a video recording of uh, this uh, webinar as well as update it on Twitter once it's available. So on behalf of Swarajji Magazine and the Indic Academy, I would like to extend again a heartfelt uh, you know, thank you and our appreciation for, to you for having uh, uh, you know, taken this time out to do this webinar. And uh, thank you everyone for taking the time out on a Sunday evening to, uh, to dial in and listen in, listen in on to this webinar. Thank you again. And thank you for uh, this wonderful webinar and addressing these very, very important ideas, not only for India, but for all humanity. Sri Garubhyo Namaha. Thank you. Namaste and, uh, and Pranam Vamdevji.